All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm Adam Roberts, your host, and I'm here with my husband, Craig Johnson. Hello. And I'm so excited because today's guest is Ruth Reichel, who is just a legend in the food world. She's one of the most famous food writers living. Um, She's the author of many books, including Tender at the Bone, Garlic and Sapphires, and her most recent book was Comfort Me with Plums. No, sorry. Leave me the plums. <laughs> comfort me with apples was her second book. Maybe comfort me with plums <laughs> is the name of your autobiography. Uh, but she was the editor in chief of Gourmet Magazine. Um, she was the food critic for the New York Times. She was the food critic for the LA Times. And she's she was in my apartment. She's sitting in the, she was sitting in the chair that you're sitting in right now, Craig. It's very exciting. You've been a fan of Ruth's for years. Oh yeah, I mean, so many people are, and so I was very giddy, but I had to play it cool. And I, you know, what's fun about Ruth is that she's not a bullshitter. She's not, she's not sentimental. She doesn't just make up story. You know, she's not somebody that's blowing smoke up your butt. You have to kind of come ready. What was her, what did she tell you when you had lunch with her, when you did your book of essays that, that you, sh- you shouldn't worry about what you should do? Oh yeah. So yeah, when I wrote my first book, which was 10 over 10 years ago, it was called the amateur gourmet. And, um, and the idea of that book was like learning how to cook and learning about things. So she went to lunch with me at, um, oh, what was that place? Was it Esca? Esca, yeah, in New York. And she um, was teaching me how to dine at a restaurant. And I remember like we ate, you know, Dave Pasternak was the chef there and he brought out a giant king crab for her. I mean, she was, I think she was still the editor-in-chief of Gourmet at the time. And I got connected to her because I, one of my teachers at NYU, Liz Diggs, was a playwright who lived near her uh, upstate. So she put me in touch and Ruth was so generous and took me to this lunch. And so anyway, yes, to your point, um, I kept asking her, I was like, what what should you, you know, what should you order and how many appetizers should you get? And how should you, you know, she was like, stop it with the word should, like, there's no should just do whatever you want. And it was very um, meaningful when she, when that happened, because, uh, it really impacted the rest of my life. Well, I think it's applicable to last night when we were having dinner. It was your birthday. Happy birthday. Oh, yeah. People are sick of hearing about my birthday. But yes, it was my and birthday. And we went to um, Key Spock. Key Spock, is that how you say it? Yeah. And um, there was an appetizer that you wanted to have yeah. uh, that our waitress was trying to kind of steer us away from. And I was very influenced by that. But then you wanted it and you stood your ground and, and you got it. You didn't, you weren't um, swayed by what, you should do. So you and took Ruth Reichel's advice. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, it was an appetizer that Ruth Reichel herself had ordered the night before and posted on Instagram. I actually bring it up in our interview. And, and but what was so interesting about it, it, it was this toast. It was called anchovy toast. And it's like a piece of toasted bread that had like a scoop of... So it was a, a piece of toasted bread drizzled with olive oil. And then it had almost like an ice cream scoop of butter on it. And then an anchovy laid on top of it. It was intense. And so I couldn't do the whole scoop of butter. I took a little bit of the butter, which was delicious, and spread it on the toast and then ate it with the anchovy. But the waitress kind of, and I say say this in the podcast, but you'll hear it again. Um, But the waitress kind of steered us away from it. But yes, I kind of clung to my inner Ruth Reichel and I was like, no, I want to try it. And I really liked it. It was a very strange textural experience to bite through an anchovy and then bite through like a mound of cold butter and then a piece of you know, oily, crisp bread, but I really loved it. There was something about the textures and the decadence and the fat of it all. It was really amazing. The fat of it all. 
That is definitely the theme of that well, appetizer. But actually, what's interesting for you, Craig, is that you come up in my interview with Ruth Reichel. Oh, dear. Uh, because you know, I feel like all these introductions sort of spoil the interviews, but maybe it just wets your palate. Um, but coming, into, coming up on this episode, you'll hear me uh, talk to Ruth about you know, forming a good palate. And she, t- she tells a story about her mother feeding her something that she knew wasn't good. And I tell the story from this week of Craig pouring a glass of milk and handing it to me and saying, hey, taste this. Tell me if it tastes bad. And then I tasted it and it tasted foul. It tasted like the like, like it literally was like milk mixed with sewage water. And I couldn't believe you didn't know it okay. didn't taste good. All right. In my defense, a, co- a couple of things. I naturally, I was pretty sure it was bad. Uh-huh. Uh, I naturally don't have a great sense of smell. So um, there's that. I also had a cold. So I was kind of particularly stuffy. I was pretty sure it was bad. I'm sure it didn't taste to, to me, though, as bad as it tasted to you. Well, it was, it was funny, though, because we were t- one of the things that comes up is we just talk about um, educating your palate, but also we talk about you know, not being able to trust your palate or, or people who, you know, not maybe be able to trust other people's palates. And it makes me wonder, like with you and like living with me, do you feel that you've increased your or improved your palate or your ability? Well, to I feel taste? like, I feel like the fact that I, that I, this is my own weird theory. This isn't based on any scientific proof, but the fact that I don't have a great sense of smell actually makes me more prone to um, enjoy very, very bold flavors. Uh-huh. Um, like I love stinky cheese. Love it. I've never met a cheese I don't like. The stinkier, the weirder, the better. That's funny. Like really funky, flavorful stuff, funky wines, crazy garlic, um, really bold flavors I tend to really, really go for. Mm. Um, it, it makes me think back to when we did that super taster taste test, uh-huh. you know, and I wonder, I don't know if you need to explain what that is, but it's how you find out if you are really sensitive to like certain flavors, bitter flavors like coffee or cheese. Were you a super taster? Um, I don't remember if I was. I don't either. remember which ones. Were. I, I, I was, I was not, I was someone that when you put the thing in your mouth, you couldn't taste it at yeah. all, which meant that I maybe wasn't super sensitive to these, um, you know, strong flavors. So as you think meaning, meaning that I in, enjoy them more. They don't repel me. I remember your friend Lisa like put oh, yeah. the little super taster thing in her mouth and was like, oh, oh my God, that tastes so bitter. I put the same one in my mouth and I couldn't taste it at all, which that was interesting. Oh yeah. And Lisa used to be very, my friend Lisa used to be like super sensitive about smell. Like if she ate, like somebody ate fish near her, she would like smell it on her clothes for weeks. Um, well, that's interesting. So you feel like your bad sense of smell makes you more capable of eating bolder food. Maybe. It's just and I don't theory. like stinky cheese, so maybe that's because I have more a sensitive sense of smell. Maybe. Well, I mean, from the Nick Sharma podcast, we learned that uh, all food, all eating is mostly uh, the taste. factory. Yeah, it's olfactory. It comes from smell. Well, there I, I buy that. I buy that. So your theory, so but in terms of like educating your palate, though, or feeling like you've grown you know your ability to taste foods or do you feel like i'll tell you very specifically something that has developed my appreciation for an acidic uh component to Uh a dish like that real kick of of acid that real you know a vinegary twist or a little bit of lime or a little bit that can to me i find take a dish over the edge and often if i'm sort of maybe 60% on a dish or a bite, I find it lacks an acidic kick sometimes, which which is 
something that I've I've certainly developed since you since living with you. Although you have called my salad overly vinegared. Yes, like to to the point where you make vinegar face. Uh, yeah, a little too I, much. I think it's because I don't mix them as well as I should. Well, there you go. Or emulsify the dressing before so you're, I. So you're taking responsibility and not putting it on me and my unsophisticated palate. Hey, this is this is not couples therapy. It's lunch therapy. Well, I think uh, people are probably really anxious to get to the interview with Ruth Reichel. It's <laughs> <laughs> your way of telling me to shut up. No, no, no. I think you know we did our good intro, but I think we have to get everyone give the give the people what they want. Yes, so, Ruth Reichel. Ruth Reichel. So before we get to that, I want to remind you: if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast by typing in Lunch Therapy on Apple Podcasts and hitting subscribe. And while you're there, if you can please, please, please leave us a review, a good review. It makes such a difference, means the world to me. All right, well, I am so excited to share with you today's interview with Ruth Reichel. All right, well, I'm going to hit record. Well, Ruth, it is such a treat to have you here. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, it's so funny. I've been, you know, I've always been a huge fan of your books. And when I lived in New York, I um, read them. But when I moved to LA, I had a car. And so I started listening to your audio books. Ah. So I've been listening to your voice. I just listened to Save Me the Plums. And your voice has been in my head for the past couple of months. I actually recorded something yesterday. Oh, um, really? I recorded something for um, Fairy Tales for Rebel Girls. Oh, cool. Which was, I hadn't been in a recording studio in a while. And it was so much fun. To, I mean, I love doing that. You have such a great voice for storytelling. I mean, just it's a pleasure to listen to you tell your read your books. Oh, thank you. I I listen to myself and think, oh my god, I have such a New York accent. Oh, you think so? <laughs> That's so funny. Um, well, Ruth, as, as I was explaining, um, this is a podcast called Lunch Therapy. But the basic premise of the podcast is that you know what you eat says something about who you are, and I feel like you are you know somebody who's built an entire life on that premise. And so I'm so excited to have you here. And um, but before we get to the therapy portion, I wanted to ask you. Um, I know that you're visiting LA right now. Or yeah, you? we come every year for every winter for a couple months. And I was going to ask because you know I know that you were here as a food editor and critic in the '80s. Right. And how do you feel LA's dining scene has changed in the past couple of decades? Well, um, it's changed in ways that. Every dining scene in America has changed, which is when I was a restaurant critic here, the people who went out to eat were basically rich white people. Mm -hmm. And now it's everybody going out to eat. And so that changes both the audience for restaurants Mm -hmm. and um, the way restaurants behave. You know, they're no, they're much more casual Mm -hmm. than they used to be. And of course, you know, the Jonathan Gold effect what was to make um, everybody explore their city through food, Mm -hmm. which, you know, when Jonathan and Lori and I were putting out the food section in the eighties, we were sort of begging people to do that. And, you know, Jonathan was writing counterintelligence back then. Mm -hmm. And we were doing big pieces about, you know, we would walk in and out of every shop in Koreatown, right. you know, and say, this, you know, how do you use these foods? And, and that was ahead of the trend. I mean, and, I mean, that's before, now everybody seems to be doing now that. Everybody, but in those <laughs> days, we were just begging people, you know, please look at the right. amazing food that's around you and don't think that the only places you can go are, um, you know, the Ivy. And, right. um, and today, I mean, that's what everybody comes to L.A. for, is for 
the extraordinary diversity of restaurants. And part of it is it has to do with the geography of L.A. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, as a Thai chef said to me in like 1984, I could spend my whole life never learning English. You know, Mm. the Thai community is so tight and it's like it's in one area. Mm-hmm. And I could, you know, always go to restaurants that only cater to Thais. Mm-hmm. And so the reason that the ethnic restaurants are ethnic, we're not supposed to use that right. word anymore, <laughs> but whatever you want to call um, restaurants that um, are small and focused on one cuisine, mm-hmm. um they can cater to an audience that really understands their food and they don't have to dumb it down. And that's why people love it. I'm curious though, in terms of the reputation that LA has though, it seems like it's gone through a real shift because it felt like New York had been the center of the food scene for so long, but it feels like right now, as far as I can tell, maybe it's my own myopia because I live here, but it feels like people are really talking about LA as the great American food well, city but, right you now. Know, it all comes around. It's cyclical. So, okay. I mean, I feel like so. I lived in Berkeley mm-hmm. in the seventies when Berkeley sure. was the center of everything that it was interesting that was happening in food. And I moved to LA in the eighties specifically because the energy was coming here, mm-hmm. and you know, California cuisine. And there right. were you know, Spago opened, and it was such a seminal restaurant. And then Wolf opened Chinois, which was the first fusion restaurant and the first gastro pub, and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jonathan Waxman said to me, you know, in the mid 80s, um, you know, I can feed people here anything. They will eat anything so long as it's not what they had last night. <laughs> and then I moved to New York in the 90s because LA, I mean, we, there were it, the 90s were really not good in LA mm-hmm. and all the restaurant energy went away. Really? It, uh, yeah. It just stopped. <laughs> it, it pretty much stopped. Huh. And, and everything, you know, people were opening. You know, one little pizza pasta place after another. Mm-hmm. And New York was suddenly fantastic. But New York, I mean, it feels like in the 90s in New York, I mean, it's sort of, there's something about the glitz and the glamour too about, I mean, that of New York. And when I think about like what I miss about New York, it's sort of the Jean-Georges, Le Bernardin of it all, which you don't get here. Right, you do not get it here. And part of that is, I mean... Danielle Boulou once said to me, and it's such an interesting comment, he said, you know, one of the unique things about New York is um, I can feed the Japanese at six Mm o'clock, the Americans at eight o'clock, and the Spanish at (laughs) 10.30. And so the economics of the restaurants really change, Mm -hmm. and you can't really do that in L.A., Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and it's one reason why you have, you know, as many high-end restaurants as you do in New York. I remember when um, Mozo was opening, I remember there was some concern that, like, people wouldn't be there late at night. And, and, yeah. Well, and now, I mean, yeah. oddly, you try and find a meal in L.A. Mm-hmm. after 11 o'clock, mm-hmm. it is really hard. Oh, it's so hard. I mean, In-N-Out Burger might be the only choice. I well, Moza, the pizzeria is open. <laughs> the kitchen doesn't close till 12. Oh, that's good to know. Oh. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you, so, I mean, you're, you're sort of a divided soul in the sense that you have your, your New York roots, and then you have your, your California periods of your life. But where does your heart belong? I mean, are you sort of split down the middle or... Um, you know, in, in I'm a New Yorker. I right. just am a New Yorker. But I really learned to... I have a California palate. I mean, mm. I really learned to eat in those years in Berkeley. Right. 
And, um, you know, one of the great things about being, I mean, here it is. Mm-hmm. It's February. I go to the farmer's market. And and then also, you know, since I've been here, I've gone to Korean supermarkets and Mexican supermarkets right. and Japanese supermarkets. And, you know, it's really, it's the greatest place to shop for food. It's true. Yeah. I, mean, I just went to the 99 Ranch store in San, the San Gabriel Valley, and it was I, just like a giant, you know, uh, wonderland of it, things it, to buy. You yeah. can't believe how big that place it's is. It's enormous. It, it's, it, yeah. And, you know, they have live turtles <laughs> and live gooey ducks. Well, it's interesting, too, in terms of what you were talking about, in terms of the egalitarian nature of the food here, that people, you know, it's, it's for everyone. People can eat all different cuisines. I feel like the, the younger people in New York are gravitating. A lot of them, it feels like, are coming to L.A. for those reasons or even people opening restaurants now it's like then you know the chefs at kismet came here from brooklyn to open this restaurant and so it feels like there's something happening here in the well in the for, for one thing um it's just cheaper to live yes. here i mean new york has now become impossible if you'd truly you know if you didn't buy your apartment 30 years ago like i did you can't afford to live there no i know and and you know that's the remarkable thing here is you can go so far with your money here i mean you can eat just tacos for a week and eat like a king so it's yeah yeah, yeah. or queen yeah (laughs) (laughs) well speaking of foods well i think maybe we should just jump right into the therapy session so ruth what did you have for lunch today i had leftovers oh okay i'm sure they were very good leftovers they they were i mean because one of the things i love about being here is that i actually cook so great i had a bunch of friends over for dinner a couple Mm -hmm. nights ago and i made a bosom Okay. And um, so... Like the David Chang. Like the, it is the David Chang <laughs> okay. Bosom, which right. is a really great meal to feed a lot of people. Did you do the oysters too? I, I, I did, but I didn't have any leftover oysters. So <laughs> okay. I didn't have the oysters for lunch. Those might not keep as well once yeah. you shuck them. Yeah. Once you shuck them, you yeah. got to eat. Plus, you can never get enough of them. You yeah. know, no matter how many you get, <laughs> there there's never enough. So... Okay. But I had some leftover pork mm-hmm. and um, I made some more of, the, the, you make this wonderful sort of scallion and ginger salad. Mm-hmm. And one of the things is that in this in the Korean supermarkets, you can buy the scallions already shredded. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and they're really cheap. <laughs> and so I, and I made a new salad for it and um, you make a couple of sauces to go with it mm-hmm. and rice and you, you wrap it up in lettuce and it's, the most delicious lunch. That's really nice. And um, so I had that. <laughs> okay. And um, then I also had for dessert, I mean, one of the reasons that I go to the Hollywood Farmer's Market every weekend is mm-hmm. to get quiches, which are- What are those? They are tiny tangerines that are seedless with very thin oh. skins. And they are the best citrus fruit in the entire world. Can you eat the skin? Like a kumquat? You don't know. You don't eat the skin. You peel them. But okay. they're but they're just, they're so easy to peel and they're so sweet. Did you post and a picture of that on Instagram today? With I persimmon? did. Okay. With, with the dried persimmons. Yeah, I think and I saw that. Yeah. My friend Hero, when he came to dinner the other night, brought some of his homemade dried persimmons. Wow. So, okay. so you um, ate pretty well today. So I had a very nice lunch today. <laughs> well, uh, immediately I have to say, like, you know, as a lunch therapist, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm already a little clouded listening to you because as somebody who's read your books and like who thinks of you almost as a fictional character, <laughs> I have a hard time reconciling like the real Ruth Reichel <laughs> with like 
the, the one I know from the books. And so part of what I'm imagining, like when, as you were describing this lunch, I'm imagining like sun coming through the kitchen and you standing there in a beam of sunlight, you know, rolling the leftovers. And I imagine the dinner party with like candles all over the table. You know, just, I mean, it, is your life as magical as it seems in the, the books that you write? Um, I don't know if it's magical, but okay, no candles at the dinner party, <laughs> really? but, um, lots of friends and everybody sort right. of standing around the kitchen and helping out and maybe a more and, professional question to ask would be, is, are you as casual and as relaxed in your real life as it seems like you are sometimes in your books in terms of just I, I, I enjoying think, things? I think I'm pretty relaxed. Okay. And I have to say, for the lunch, I mean, we've rented this place that has a little tiny back porch that gets sun all day long. Mm -hmm. So I did take, I mean, I made this pretty plate. Yes. And I took it outside (laughs) and sat in the sunshine. And, you know, there's bougainvillea (laughs) tumbling down the hill. This feels like the cover of your next next book. I feel like this Uh, is the image. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So, um, yeah. I mean, I I feel, knock wood, you know, extraordinarily lucky. But I think you, I think you manifest, I mean, you know, not to get too deep too quickly, but I feel like reading about your childhood, reading about your, your parents and, you know, I've, I've noticed doing this podcast, there's a real commonality amongst food people, which is a lot of them who didn't necessarily have this robust food life growing up, created it for themselves later in life. And it feels with you very much so that you created the life that you wanted. I, I did. And I, and I honestly believe that, you know, we have choices in life and you yes. can choose to be miserable. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Or you can choose to find joy in small things. Mm-hmm. And that's for me, you know, food is every day. It's a place where you touch happiness. That's really interesting. And, you know, you know, why would you eat badly when it's so easy to eat well mm. and to choose something delicious as opposed to something horrible. And it's just, I mean, for me, they eating is like a moment of grace. That's really, yeah. And, and it's, it's mental health in a way to take that time to feed yourself well is to allow yourself to feel good, you know, it's, yeah. it's a connection. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to say, you know, I deserve this. And it, it like, you know, no matter what is going on in your life and, huh. you know, God knows right now we all need a, a little moment to just go, okay, this will end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we need a lot of those moments. But has that always been true for you? I mean, has has food always been something that brought you that happiness and that feeling of grace? Um, Yeah, food has always been um, a touch point for me. And I imagine that it has something, I mean, my childhood was not Rosie, right? In um, you know, having a mentally ill mother is difficult, and mm. um, my mother being bipolar, food was one of her real issues. You right. know, when she was manic, she didn't eat; she got very thin. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't eat; she didn't sleep. Right. And then when she was depressed, she would go to bed for like six months mm-hmm. and read the same book, literally the same book, over and over really? every yeah. day, and eat and and get fat. So. I mean, food has always mm. been something that I understood was um, had a real psychological uh, aspect to it. It makes me think a little bit about control, too, about your mom, like, losing control and and then maybe reclaiming it. But for you to, to sort of be this um, person who knows so much about food gives you a lot of control over 
what you eat and what you don't eat? Well, you know, we all know that, you know, the reason children have food issues is because one of the few things they can control. There's mm-hmm. no question that, right. you know, in feeding people is a way of nurturing people mm-hmm. and in some sense, you know, giving them a piece of yourself. So, um, yeah, I, I do think food is um, – and, and in my household growing up, you know, because my mother either was, you know, not cooking at all when she was depressed because she was in bed mm-hmm. or cooking in the craziest way. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, literally people think this is apocryphal, but, you know, making, putting a roast, a, a you know, 10 pound roast in the oven, taking it out 10 minutes later and <laughs> saying, you know, dinner's ready. Right. That's, fa- um, yeah. And so, you know, for me, like cooking and making a calm space at the table is very important. Well, I'm curious because you, you're a mother yourself yes. and your son grew up now with this mother who is, you know, this extraordinary food person. So how does your son think about what, I mean, how does he, this may be putting words in his mouth, but what was it like for him to grow up with a, such a food loving mother who put so much attention to detail in it? Well, you know, he, uh, he had food issues. Okay. Um, um, and I think largely, I mean, yeah, you know, I was a food-loving mother. I was also a restaurant critic for the right. first 10 years of his life, so I was never home for dinner. Right. And I, that was very difficult for him. And one of the reasons I stopped being a restaurant critic was because Nick was really saying, you know, why, why do we never have dinner together? Mm. You know, and when you're at the New York Times, you go out 12 or 14 times a week. I mean, it's just, it is endless. And I didn't want to have, I mean, it was one of the things Jonathan and I, Gold and I talked about a lot, because when he was doing it, he took his kids everywhere. But I remember nights when, you know, it'd be 11 o'clock at night and they Mm. had school the next day and Mm. we're all still at dinner. (laughs) Okay. Um, And I thought I wasn't going to do that to Nick and I didn't want him to be one of those obnoxious little foodie kids either. (laughs) Obnoxious little kids who goes in and says, ooh, this foie gras isn't as good as the foie gras I had yesterday. Shaving truffles over his PBJ. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, you know, in the end, I think Jonathan was right and I was wrong. I I should have Hmm. tried harder to include Nick in, um, in my business. Um, well, I mean, it's almost, I mean, when I think of you as the food critic for the New York Times in the, in the peak of your career, I mean, it was like you were a celebrity. I mean, you may as well have been like Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> after Titanic. So it's not even just about food in that situation. It almost feels like you got, you were swept up in this job and the culture, of, you know, which. It was a very princess job. There's no question. Yeah. I mean, it really was, you know, people would say, I read you religiously. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I'm a religion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many places to go in this conversation, but I did, I do find the, the thread so far to be really fascinating about this idea of like food being a way to nurture yourself, a way to nurture your children, a way, and, and for you to have come from a mother where she wasn't able to do that and for you to do that in your own way. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff already that's kind of fascinating to me. Well, and it's also, you know, um, my my mother, none of my grandmothers cooked, mm-hmm. um, which is also really yeah. interesting because other people have, you know, maybe mom didn't cook, but grandma. We're very was, similar in this way, though. It, my mom didn't cook and my grandmother didn't cook, so yeah. Um, why why didn't why didn't they cook? <laughs> I don't. I think I honestly think it was a class thing, you know, that they they saw it as. A, a sign that they'd made it, you know, the, right. the children of immigrants, grandchildren of immigrants, that, that if they don't have to cook, then it's a sign that they've made it in America, I, th- I think. I, no, I think that I think that's true. I mean, I mean my, the apartment I grew up in in New York mm-hmm. um, 
had the kitchen was very separated mm-hmm. from there was this the kitchen you walked in and there was a kitchen and there was a long hall down mm. to the living room okay and when my mother entertained i mean that door was firmly shut mm. and even if there wasn't a maid in there cooking dinner <laughs> yeah. the pretense was mm. that you know oh the servants are doing that. Yeah. Well, I remember in your book, your most recent book with Cy Newhouse, when you went to lunch with him and he said that his cook couldn't cook anything from Gourmet Magazine. And you realized that that's the problem with the magazine. It was for people who had cooks. And it not, was. Yeah. It was. Well, maybe a good way to, to kind of do this might be just to kind of go back for people who don't know your full story and you know how you grew up. So you grew up in New York. I, I, I grew up in Greenwich Village. Yes. Um, and I, I mean... We, <laughs> Um, and with a, uh, my father was a book designer mm-hmm. and, um, it, it was, it was a, the fifties in New York were, especially in Greenwich village were interesting. It was a very small community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went to PS 41 and literally the, the principal knew every single kid in the school. Really? Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and so as in those early days, I mean, you were, you, you write a lot about your childhood and, and the connection to food, but were you very interested in food from like an, a very early age? Always. 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 I mean, so, I mean, this is a long story, but um, I, I, it's one of my earliest memories is my mother giving me something to eat mm-hmm. and I spit it out. Hmm. And I just remember it being the most disgusting thing I ever had in my mouth. I mean, it was just, ah. <laughs> and my mother looked puzzled, took a bite, and said, what's wrong with you? This is perfectly delicious. And I knew that she and I didn't taste the same thing hmm. and that I had to be very careful. Oh, and wow. you know, what my mother did was that so she would take the ends of, you know, when she put a ice cream container on the out in the counter Mm -hmm. and then it would melt and she would put she would just pour it into one of those metal ice trays okay and it would be all different kinds of ice cream (laughs) okay and then it would refreeze Uh and it had that kind of furry horrible texture and then that ice box taste you know so that's what she had put in your mouth that's what she had put in my mouth and she literally couldn't tell that it was disgusting that's it. Some people I, are like that. And she, my mother was literally taste blunt. I mean, she. Craig just poured, my husband just poured milk out of the refrigerator that was like a little expired. He's like, does this taste bad? And he gave it to me because he had tasted it. And I drank it. And it was the most foul, horrific <laughs> thing I've ever tasted. And, and he had no sense that it was bad. So maybe that's just a thing. Well, but. I think there are, you know, um, MFK Fisher talks about people being taste blind. And my, I think my mother was. But mm-hmm. for me, it was, I better taste carefully. Yeah. Because, you know, maybe she's going to give me poison. So, so tasting and, and having a capacity to understand food was, way to, it was a survival skill. It was you. a survival skill. Wow. And, and then um, because of her craziness around food, I really started cooking. I mean, the cover of Tender at the Bone is a picture of me cooking, and mm-hmm. I'm seven. Okay. And you can see that this isn't a cute little trick that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm literally cooking dinner. Wow. Um, because... The best way to get dinner in my house was not to let my mother cook it. Hmm. 
When did you start to get enough distance? This is something I, I think about a lot as a writer because, you know, my mom is still alive. She's in Florida. Uh, and I, if I was going to write a, like a memoir the way that you did about your mother, your family, and even Comfort Me with Apples, I mean, some of the characters in that, you know, when, how, did, how did you as a writer get up the courage to write about these people who may or may not have still been alive when you were writing about them? And Well, yeah. Um, with the first, with Tender at the Bone, I would not have written it if my mother had still been alive. So she I mean, wasn't she, alive. She and my father were both dead by then. Okay. And um, the chapters that were about other people, mm-hmm. like Marion Cunningham, where I talked about her alcoholism, mm-hmm. I sent her the chapter. So you made said, sure that they were okay is, with it. Is there anything you want me to change in this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, anytime I think that, I, mean, I don't think you write to settle scores. I mean, that right. is ridiculous. Um <laughs> And the truth is that on the first pass of Tender, I tried not to talk about my mother's mental illness. Mm. And my editor said, there's a secret here. I don't know what you're not saying, but mm. you're not saying something. I mean, I tried to make her a kind of, you know, halcyon, Mary Poppins, anti-mame kind of right. character. Sure. And it didn't work. Oh, and, that's really cool when an editor can see that, you know. Yeah, well, she she just knew that there was not something not right. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of took a deep breath and thought, okay, you know, if I'm going to write about mom at all, mm-hmm. I've got to and, – and, you know, growing up with a bipolar parent is – I mean, it's a pretty defining uh, sure. childhood memory. So – um, and afterwards, I was really glad I had because um, I got a lot of letters from the children of bipolar people saying, mm. it's really good to know that you can survive it. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess another question that would be like, how did you, when did you first have perspective on what you had gone through in your own life? I mean, did, did, did you leave home and then start to look back on your childhood and say, that was a little strange or that, you know? It, it was... It was really late. I mean, I had my first husband and I moved back to New York after college, mm-hmm. and um, we both ended up working for my father for a while. Okay. Um, and Doug and, and my father were very close. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, we lived there for three years, and it was clear I could not live in the same city as my mother. I mean, mm. she was just so demanding. I mean, right. she was just, you know, every holiday, every birthday you know she was just constantly you know i mean i would walk into my father's office and he'd say you know did you call did you call your mother yet today mm. and doug finally said we can't stay in new york we've, right. we've got to get it and so it was really not we we left berkeley we left new york and went to berkeley pretty much to get away from my parents that's okay and, so was that the first oh yeah keep finish what you were gonna say and and, and that was pretty much when i started to yeah. understand um, how difficult mm-hmm. my mother was. I, I don't think you can be in it and acknowledge it Absolutely. And, and survive. I mean, I think you have to sort of, you know, think it's, oh, everybody goes through this. Right. So then you started to get enough perspective and then you were able to write about it when you saw what it was from a distance. Yeah. So when you left home for the first time, when you left New York, was that to go to college or was that? No. Um, so, I mean, my parents really were, out there. Okay. So my mother, one day I, I was going to Hunter and uh-huh. my mother picked me up in February of mm-hmm. eighth grade. And she said, we're going to Montreal for the weekend. <laughs> and I never came home. <laughs> she put me in a French boarding school 
French Catholic boarding school. For college? No, this is high school. Oh, for high school. I did not speak one word of French. Wow. And I am there, uh-huh. abandoned in this place. <laughs> yes. Um, and not only was there the whole thing of, I didn't speak French, and there I am, and it's the middle of the year. And um, it was also a school that the French government run for the children of their diplomatic corps in mm-hmm. Montreal. But they all went home on the weekend, so I was the only one there all weekend. Wow. And it was it was a really rough experience. Sure. And Did I you s- learn French? Oh, I, yeah. You, <laughs> learn, you know, at that age, you learn language really quickly. Mm-hmm. So I learned. And then um, I stayed for a couple of years. And then um, when we, when I finally said, you know, I don't want to do the back. I mean, I, 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 I really want to graduate from an American high school. Mm-hmm. And... The New York public school system was very angry because they get paid for every day that a child is there. They take attendance. Mm. And I was absent for mm. like five months. Right. So they said, you can never come back to a special New York oh, school. No. You know, you'd, you'd have to go to whatever. And <laughs> so my parents had a country house in South Norwalk, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, for your last year of school, we'll move up to the country. Mm. Um, except, so I was... 15 going into 16 and they decided they really didn't like living in the country. So they pretty much left me there alone. Really? Um, for a year. Like truly alone? Like yeah. in a house? In a house. Uh, and you just uh, took care it, of yourself and, yeah, and you were cooking and, at that point. At first I stayed with friends and then it got embarrassing staying with friends. So as soon yeah. as I got my driver's license, I said, I'm just going to stay in the house alone. It's fascinating when you hear stuff like this, though, from people who are extraordinarily successful, because it almost feels, I just think of you as like, when I see like someone loading a cannon and like shoving like the cannonball into the cannon, it's like you were like, your childhood was basically preparing you for this accelerated, exciting life, you know, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things is, um, you know, I, I wake up every day grateful that one, I'm not my mother. Mm Mm-hmm. And two, that I'm happy because, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very aware of the difference between, I mean, how deeply unhappy I was for the first 19 years of my life. And How do you think that you pulled it together, though? I mean, it, it seems like a lot of people wouldn't necessarily have the toolkit that you had to get through something like that. Well, you know, these things either make you or destroy you. Right. And, um you know, so I think it made me strong. Mm-hmm. Made I think me, so too. It made me independent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I never thought anyone was going to take care of me because nobody ever did. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, um, and as a woman of my generation, you know, mm-hmm. I never thought any man was going to take care of me. It was like, you know, I'm going to have to do this for myself. And I feel really fortunate because, you know, a lot of women my age, you know, went to college just to get married mm-hmm. and wasted their intelligence and were frustrated by it. Do you find it difficult to, today to let somebody take care of you? Yeah, I'm not. I'm very bad at asking for help. Right. I'm very bad at it. But you're, but you're fiercely independent. I, I am very independent. I mean, I like being taken care of, but I don't know how to say, you know, would you? I mean, it's like, you know, knowing a lot of chefs. I mean, chefs are very good at, mm-hmm. you know, saying you do this and you do that and you do that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have all these chef friends who, you know, are very constantly saying, 
And I'm always, no, 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 I can do it by myself. That's I don't need help. It actually makes me think about a restaurant as a place where you are taken care of. And your job as a restaurant critic was, you know, as somebody who had to take care of themselves for so long and then professionally went into a job where you were being taken care of all the time. Uh, I'm sure there's a big part of that. I mean, I yeah. do I do like being taken and care of. And then also kind of biting the hand that's taking yeah. care of you by yeah. writing a bad review. I mean, it's sort yeah. of like there's like a lot of layers to it because it's sort of like there's a parental element to the restaurant caring for you. But then there's also like the fact that you're a critic. So you're sort of back at the sink tasting well, the ice cream again. Well, it's interesting that you think of criticism that way because I don't. I mean, I don't it think of it as biting. Way. I think of it, you know, it can be. Yeah. But, you know, the real joy in restaurant criticism is not writing the mean reviews. Sure. It's, you know, finding um, some really talented chef that nobody is going to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I, here in LA, when I went to Rook and Wagner the first time, mm-hmm. a little tiny restaurant in Venice, mm-hmm. I was the only person there. Mm-hmm. And I thought Hans was, you know, so talented. Mm-hmm. And it was just be able to, great. you know, I mean, I think the first line of that review was, you know, last Thursday, there was only one customer, <laughs> Wagner, yeah. and knowing that that would never happen again after the review came out. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, in your most recent book, you write about how you struggled with the idea of being a restaurant critic, that you had written an essay for the New York Times Magazine about it. Yeah. And I find, I mean, I, if I were a critic, I would want to only write positive reviews, but there is that negative side too. Oh, you, you, you can't only, yeah. I mean, you have to, you have to write the truth or no, or they're useless. Mm-hmm. You know, if all you ever do is like be a Pollyanna and say, Oh, it's so <laughs> wonderful. And it's not, you know, if you can't write the negative review, you can't do that job. Right. Um, well, there's that startling moment in your book where, um, you're doing a book signing and a little boy is like pushed in front of you. And then a man says, you know, I'm the chef that you wrote a horrible review of and I lost my job. So explain it to my son. And I mean, it was, it was horrible. I can't imagine. It was really horrible. And you know, you know that, you know, when you write a really bad review, um, well, not always, Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, Sometimes the really bad reviews are as good for a restaurant as the really good reviews. Really? How so? Um, because people remember them. And right. six weeks later, they don't remember it. <laughs> I've heard about that restaurant. They don't remember if it was good or bad. They, okay. said they heard about it. Okay. That's fair. And the, you know, this place is just okay. Yeah. You forget it. That's really funny. Well, it makes me think about the idea of the truth, too, because you said, you know, sometimes you have to tell the truth. But... You know, with the restaurant is, you know, what is the truth about a meal? You know, is is it is it true to say that the salad was not cold enough or the soup was, you know? Well, I mean, that's what I mean. I think it's really important as a critic to remind people that it's your truth. Mm. You know, that there there is no truth in restaurants or any kind of taste. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the truth about food is that none of us knows if we're tasting the same thing, well, you, as you just said, you yeah. know, your husband <laughs> drink tasting, poison milk, t- tasting the same milk. He yeah. didn't taste the same thing that you did. Right. So, um, you know, um, the idea that there's a right mm-hmm. or a wrong in restaurants is ridiculous. And I think it's important to keep reminding your readers that I'm not right. I'm just telling you what my experience was. 
Which is where I think for me as somebody who grew up, you know, going to like TGI Fridays and Chili's and the Olive Garden with my parents and grandparents, like, you know, when I started to educate myself when I moved to New York, I would read you and I would read, you know, Calvin Trillin and I would read, read these writers, but I would rely on great food writers to kind of help me with my palate and help me with my taste. And, you know, and, and it's fascinating because I would get into fights with friends at the time, you know, who would be like, why is the pasta at the Olive Garden not as good as what it is at Babo? You know, and it's like, but it's not you know but it's hard to explain that to people you know well you know the only thing you can do is take them there and and taste it or make something for them and say you know tell me why this is different Mm -hmm. from what you ate at olive garden right and let them let them yeah because it's not like you're i think what gets tricky for people is they think that because somebody's a food writer or a food critic that they hold themselves above everybody else and that they hold their palate above everybody else's and therefore, there's something that they get that other people don't get. But I think that's a tricky thing, right? It, it's a tricky thing. And, um, you know, people think of of restaurant critics as different than other critics. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I mean, it's criticism. And the, the point of criticism is to enable your readers to experience whatever it is, whether it's art or theater or books or movies or food. Mm-hmm. In a fuller way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the great thing about restaurant criticism isn't like saying, go spend your money here. Mm-hmm. It's saying, you know, when you go to this restaurant, you know, um, this is how, this is why this sushi is different than supermarket sushi. Right. Or even and, how to, I mean, I remember or, in one of your books, you wrote about how to dip your sushi yeah. in the fish side down yeah. and the soy sauce versus the rice side down. Right. And well, yeah. let me tell you that um, it's very hard to figure out how to do that without, you know, being pedantic. I mean, you right. can't just say, this is not how you do it. I mean, right. I did that with um, in a conversation right. between two people. I remember, I think, that did the chef tell you? or Yes, yeah. the, chef, the chef is telling someone I took to eat sushi for the first time. No, 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 mm-hmm. don't do that. Yeah. So, I mean, we're doing your life story, but I know really we're never going to get through the whole thing. But, I mean, we, 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 you were in school and, in, in the, and you were living by yourself. Right, right. But then where, what was the next move? Then I went to college. Right. Uh, I went to the University of Michigan. Oh, okay, Michigan. Um, I don't think I knew that. Um, yeah, and um, I was only 16, which is wow. I would not recommend going to college. And I had never been to the state of Michigan before I went there. Wow. What made you choose Michigan? Um, well, again, you know, I'm alone in mm. my house yeah. trying to figure out where to apply for college, and I went right away for all these things. Mm-hmm. And Michigan, there was no fee for sending in the application. Mm-hmm. So, you so know, you my parents said, you know, you can spend $100 or whatever. Mm-hmm. On, and so I sent it in, and they, um, they accepted me early admission. So I knew Amazing. in October that I could go there, and then I only other applied to two other places. And what, what was your major in college? As an undergraduate, I was a sociology major, mm-hmm. and then I stayed in Ann Arbor to get in-state tuition. Okay. I worked for a year, and then I went back to school and got a master's in history of art. Wow. You've had so many lives. It feels like you've lived more lives than like most people get well, to live. I'm 72. I, so. But still, I mean, I mean, it's incredible. So then when did you get to California? Was that the next move after Michigan? No. So I um, got married right out of, got my master's. Um, Doug and I got married. We moved to New York. We lived in, we lived um, on Rivington Street okay. and the Bowery, which in 1970 was a really scary neighborhood. I can't imagine. I mean, <laughs> it was it was really 
um, something. And it's actually before Soho. I mean, we had a choice of getting a loft on Rivington and the Bowery mm-hmm. or um, Prince and Mercer. Okay. And, and we chose Rivington and the Bowery <laughs> wow. because in 1970, there was no difference. You know, but if you got Prince and Mercer, you'd be on some very valuable real estate. Exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. And then yeah. is that the period when your mother was sort of... That's, yeah. Being, okay. And, and Doug and I were living with um, another friend of ours from mm. school. Um, and um, it was great. It was a great... And then I... So I was working for my father. Hated it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, all our friends from college would come through and stay in our loft. And mm. it was a great cooking experience for me because the Lower East Side, the old Jews were all still there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these great fish stores that did, you know, gefilte fish. Was Russ and Daughters there? Russ and Daughters have been there. I mean, I've been going there since I was a baby. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, Yona Schimmel. And, uh, and Yeah. Uh-huh. And then there, there was Chinatown and Little Italy. And, you know, you'd go into DePaolo's mm-hmm. and you, you'd stand there. I mean, so I've known Lou DePaolo since <laughs> like then. Amazing. And you'd stand there and, and, these old Italian ladies mm-hmm. were like so thrilled to see a young person mm-hmm. in the store. So they just, you know, standing in line, they'd give me recipes. Oh, that's so nice. And the Chinese people, and I'd go in and say, you know, how do you use these dried shrimp? And they'd tell me. And so you were you were becoming Ruth Reichel so, as before you were I, Ruth Ruth Reichel. I just did the quote sign, but I, you know you were on, you, you were educating yourself. I, I, and, yeah, and I was cooking these huge meals for all yeah. our friends who came through. And I was also, there was a restaurant called Food mm-hmm. um, in Soho that opened in like, I don't know, 71, I think. Okay. I cooked desserts for them. Okay. Um, in my loft. Really? And, and my husband, who's an artist, made made this kind of like a yolk, you know, like with those milk pail things uh-huh. but with shelves on it. So okay. I would bake these pies and walk across. Oh my gosh. Walk across Spring Street <laughs> Holding with, with my pies dangling down wow. my sides. Um, and... I just, I just needed to get out of working for my dad. And so my roommate said, you know, you're such a good cook. Why don't you write a cookbook? Hmm. And I wrote a cookbook. Was that the Fistier? Yeah, it was, yeah. I love that. That's such a beautiful cover, too. Doug did that. He had never done, he he had never done, uh, he did it with the airspray. He'd never done it before. Really? It has such a great, like, Uh, it feels so much of, like, the 70s. It has that great vibe to it. And we had all our friends come and do art. So, like, Mm -hmm. 10 different artists did stuff, and there's art on every page. It's like, it's a very, it's an artifact of its time. But they gave me enough money so I didn't have to work for my dad anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they gave us a design fee and then they gave me, I think I got $10,000 as an advance in design fee, which, you know, in 1971 seemed like the biggest fortune on earth. To sure. us. What did your dad think of the book? Cause he was oh, in book publishing, right? My dad was a book designer, book designer. And, and kind of a fan, you know, he did the American edition of Ulysses. And, right, and, right, right, um, right. I think I knew that. Yeah. And no, he was very helpful. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, it was actually, you know, he told me where to take it. Okay. And, I, and I actually think that the editor who bought it, bought it because she loved my dad so much. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. And, um, you know, he it wasn't his... It, <laughs> he would never have done a book like that, but he appreciated it. And sure. when we had problems, he helped. And we gave them... We pasted it up and gave them design, you know, camera-ready copy. Mm. Um it was a great, fun project. I want to look for uh, it when, when, when you leave. I'm going to try to find it on like eBay or it's something. It's really hard to find. Oh, yeah. Maybe like Omnivore Books. I bet she has it. Um, I, <laughs> they're hard to find. Okay. Um, 
Anyway, um, they printed simultaneously. They printed 3,000 hardcovers and 10,000 oh, wow. paperbacks. So, you know, and, and it's an old book. And um, okay. you can occasionally find one. All right, I'll but, go to the black market uh, when you go. Uh, um, so then you, so this, this is the period that when you went to Berkeley. And, that, yeah, and, okay. then, and, and then, you know, finally we just put everything in our van, like, mm-hmm. all our belongings yeah. and our cat and drove out to Berkeley and, and that's sort of the comfort me with apples period of your life, right? Because yeah, yeah. we, ju- we just left tender at the bone. <laughs> right, exactly. And now we're going to comfort me with apples. I mean, because I, I just listened to comfort me with apples because I'd somehow missed that in the, the journey. And I just love the whole, that whole period. It feels like the food version of Woodstock, it, your book. It, yeah, well, it is kind of. I mean, you know, Berkeley in the 70s. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, we we joined up with some other artists and um Doug and Nick wanted to have a space big enough for a shop. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the people we were buying this house with had um, endless tools. Mm-hmm. And um, so we went looking for a house. And this this is, see, this is where it's so different today than okay. it was then. We bought a house in Berkeley, a 17-room old Victorian <laughs> house for $29,000. Wow, okay. <laughs> and- then all our friends moved in with us. So that's like the rent right now <laughs> for a house in Berkeley, probably. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. so Doug and my share of the rent was $45 a month. Wow. And it meant that we could, you know, Doug could make art and, you know, I could write. What year was it that you went to Berkeley? Uh, 1973. So this was post, like, this was after, like, Woodstock and after, like, Charles yeah. Manson. And it wasn't, like, in the house. It wasn't uh, during the, like, no. put a fe- like, flower in your hair and play the guitar. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I did go out to, for the Summer of Love in 67, oh. I did go out to San Francisco. Oh, did but, you? Yeah. Oh, you were there for that, too. Okay. <laughs> um, but, no, this was much later. This is, okay. um, you know, this is the beginning of Chez Panisse. Sure. And, um, and this is, like, a food moment in Berkeley. And, you know, the war ends and we're all really proud. You know, we have ended this war and Mm. we really felt that. I mean, it really felt like our generation, we had created this political movement Mm -hmm. and we had said, you know, this is, this is, this war is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And we ended it. And then we sort of in Berkeley looked around for what's our next issue. And it was food. I mean, we Mm. started seeing that, you know, the industrialization of American food and the vertical integration of agriculture, of the agribusiness companies. Mm -hmm. And um, I did a bunch of projects about it. Um, So you were kind of ahead of that too, in a lot of ways, because I mean, food now feels like it's more relevant than ever. Right. Yeah. No. And we were really aware of it. And we were talking about climate change, you know, Mm -hmm. Frankie LePay wrote diet for small planet and it was, you know, had a huge impact on me and we were dumpster diving Mm. and, you know, I mean, Nick came home one day and said, can't believe what I found thrown out behind the the supermarket. And we started, you know, going out every day and, you know, we'd find whole flats of eggs and, you know. I'm curious, this is sort of a sidebar, but, you know, with Alice Waters in that period and the starting of Chez Panisse, why do you think that, you know, it's like, for me, she's a hero. I, I have all of her books and I, I've always adored her, but it seems like she seems, at least from my perspective, unfairly maligned by some people in the food media. I mean, where does that come from, do you think? Um. You know, I have to say, I think part of it is that she's a woman. I think and so, And part too. of it is that, you know, what Alice is really, and, and she's a close friend, so. Yeah. Um, Alice is a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. You know, she started that restaurant 
as a kind of revolutionary moment. She is the only chef of her stature who hasn't, you know, sold out in some way. Mm -hmm. I mean, she still lives in the same house she lived in, you know, when I first knew her in the 70s. Really? Oh, wow. Um, she drives a Prius. Um, <laughs> she And she has put everything she has into the Edible Schoolyard projects. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is deeply political. Mm -hmm. I mean, her whole mission in life is to change the American food system. And um, I think Americans don't really like revolutionaries. Right. It's just too, some people find her too aggressive or too unrealistic or, you know. But I, I think she's amazing and laudable. I mean, she's really one of my heroines. Um, yeah, I think so too. I mean, I'm, I've always been fascinated when I, when I, whenever I read, I, I mean, for some reason I keep thinking of Anthony Bourdain, what he would write about her, but I feel like there are other people too who sometimes take her to task. And, yeah, but you know, so like, you know, David Chang did that whole thing about, but, but he's now yeah. he's now on the board of the Edible Schoolyard. Uh, I mean, okay. and, you know, and Tony Bourdain too. I mean, a lot of that is, you know, she's, She's not just a woman, but she's the older generation mm -hmm. woman for all these, you know, bro-y guys who sure. are now sort of regretting that. I bet. Yeah. What they did. Sure. Um, and um, I th and I also think, you know, she I mean, she's really political. I mean, the one of the reasons that the Obama White House was so focused on food was because of Alice. Mm. And I think Michelle Obama was right to not want to be an elitist movement and mm. not to ever mention Alice's input. Mm. But Alice had a lot of input into that because, you know, she came to me when I was at Gourmet and said, you know, I tried to get the Clintons to care about food issues and I wasn't successful. All I got was like a tomato plant. <laughs> um, she said, you know, we have got to get the Obamas interested in food. And I went to the campaign and said, what do I have to do? And they said, first, we've got to get him elected, raise money. Mm. And Alice, Danny Myers, and I, with a bunch of Broadway people, we raised more money in one night uh, for the Obama campaign than anybody except uh, Bruce Springsteen. Really? Yeah. That's and incredible. that was Alice. That was Alice just leveraging every, you know, she called in every chit she had. And, um, and she really wanted to get food on their agenda. She's almost like Jane Fonda, like it, of the food world, like, and that she's polarizing for some people. But but now people can look at Jane Fonda and be like, "Wow, what a hero!" Wow, really? Yeah. You know yeah. how amazing. Well, I mean, we have about fifteen to twenty minutes left. I don't want to <laughs> keep you longer. So, I mean, I, I, you know, when I think about all these periods of your life, I mean. So we just got to Berkeley. Okay. And then and then Berkeley was sort of where, if I remember correctly, like you ultimately got pulled to LA to become... Yeah, but I was in Berkeley for 10 years. For 10 and years. And I, I really started writing seriously about food in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, I started writing for a magazine called New West. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I had been writing little service pieces for them. Mm-hmm. And I'd been sort of ghostwriting one of their columnists. Okay. And um, she very generously said, you know, you should write more stuff. And she took me in and introduced me to mm -hmm. um, all the editors. And so I sort of worked my way up. And one day, my editor ate. Oh, I also worked. 
I worked in a collective restaurant in Berkeley, oh, okay. too. I mean, that's how I made money uh-huh. most of the time that I was in Berkeley. And when you were cooking, was, was there a moment when you were feeding people, whether it was like baking at the bakery or, or um, cooking at the collective restaurant, where people were like, wow, Ruth, you've got a real talent for this? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, people thought I, I was... A good cook. I mean, people yeah. always thought I was a good cook. So you had I mean, that right out of the gate. You, yeah, yeah. I mean, even in college, um, I, for a while, lived in in a a group home where I sort of was in charge of all the food. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've always it, it's always been what I've done. Right, and so um, so when you were so then you started writing at in Berkeley, you were writing yeah. about food. So yeah, so I, I'm at the restaurant, mm-hmm. and one of my editors comes in, and it, it's literally like a light bulb goes off over his head, and he says. Um, you know, you're a much better writer than our restaurant critic, mm. and you know food. Have you ever thought about doing restaurant reviews? Mm. And, you know, we're, we're dirt poor. Right? <laughs> I don't have a credit card. I don't have anything. And I'm not thinking, oh, this is my career as a writer. I'm right. just thinking, free food. I get to go to restaurants. <laughs> right. And so I started writing these reviews, and I just knew that I hated most restaurant reviews. I thought they were boring. Mm-hmm. So I wrote these little short stories I mean, they're they're very weird restaurant reviews, but you know they're you know set in the 17th century, or they're love stories, <laughs> oh, or uh-huh. they're westerns, or. And were you always interested in writing? Was that part of I your? I grew background? up in publishing, right? I mean, all, all my friend, all my parents' friends were in publishing. Uh-huh. It's all I knew. Yeah, I mean, always interested in in writing. In writing, yeah. And and uh, was that something that you had shown a predilection for though, growing up too? Like, were you a good writer as a yeah, student? And yeah, stuff? yeah. And even when I when I wrote exams in art history, mm-hmm. um, the, my professors would always say, you know, or even when I was doing social work, mm. I'd say, you know, like your, your reports read like novels. Oh, right. Uh, so you had that within you. I, yeah. 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 So this was the first, was this the first moment, this job where you got to kind of combine the two loves? Yeah. And, and it was also this first moment where like I took a chance and mm-hmm. I think it's like, you know, I mean, for the first one, the, the, the tryout one, mm-hmm. I did something very weird. I mean, I wrote it like a film, like a film noir script. Okay. And, um, you know, it was new journalism. Right. I mean, I, I could have completely blown it, but they loved it. And these these weird little short stories had a real cult following. It makes me wonder, like, you know, with the, with the stuff that you've written over the years, like the famous Le Cirque review yeah. where you go in disguise and you come as yourself. I mean, there's such great storytelling to them. I mean, it almost makes me, I think of like David Sedaris and his autobiographical stuff. It's like they're... I, I want to be careful with what word I use here because I don't want to say like heightened or exaggerated because that implies untruthfulness. But do you feel your your tendency towards storytelling? This is sort of what I was asking earlier too about like the mytho- you know, the, almost like there's a mythology surrounding you. I feel like yeah, yeah I'm you know, <laughs> stories are important, right? I think know? so too. Yeah, and um, you know, as I said, I in didn't the even form a question, but, just, but you knew what I'm talking about. I know right? exactly what you're talking about, yeah. and you know, and as I said in the introduction to um, Tender at the Bone, um, you know, I will sacrifice almost anything to a good story, right? And not everything here is true, but it's not all completely factual. Why do you think though, like some writers, like that, remember that whole Oprah thing with million little pieces? Right. You know, he got raked over the coals well, for fabricating some stuff. Well, I mean, What's the difference? I mean, because I, I do the same thing in my writing, but I'm curious. But, you know, okay, the, the difference is, um, 
you know, I so when I do stuff, I sometimes conflate things, mm-hmm. but I don't invent things. Right, he invented, and he invented a whole background for himself. I right. mean, who would have bought that book if it, people thought he really wasn't a junkie? Mm-hmm. You know, did you have you ever written about people though, or had told stories in one of your books, and then had those people be like, "Ruth, that's not how you know it happened," or "or that's not what I'm like," or "That's I yeah, mean, nobody ever likes what you write about them." <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, it was it was funny because. Um, your comfort me, comfort me with apples. When I first read that, um, Coleman Andrews as a character, because you had your this love affair yeah. with Coleman Andrews, yeah. and um, and then I got to meet him later and let you know. And it's like he just seemed like a nice guy, but like in the book, it was like you know, it almost made me think of Mister Big and Sex in the City. Yeah, well, I mean, he was like that for me. And yeah, you know, it's funny. He his seventy fifth birthday was yesterday. Okay, so. that's amazing. Uh, so. Um, you know, I we had a little back and forth. About, um, <laughs> what was that like then when you wrote "Come from You" with apples and you wrote about him? Well, so I called him, and because I mean, we have we have never not been friends. I okay. mean, except for right after when he broke up with me, right in a kind of horrible way. But yeah. um, I mean, I keep my friends. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I, I there are very few people who I don't still know, mm-hmm. um, and. Coleman and I, he's worked for me, I've worked for him, I mean, our entire careers. Mm. And so when I was writing that, I said, do you want to read the chapter? Do you want me to change your name? Mm. Um, and he's, well, he said, I want to read it. And I said, I'm not going to let you read it. Oh, but okay. I will change your name okay. if you want me to. And he said, no, don't. Mm. And his only complaint was, he said, you know, I don't like eggs. <laughs> <laughs> that was the big complaint. That's, well, that's, that's very graceful. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's so fun to like meet you and, and that also like hear you talk about these people because there's something about, it, it is, it does feel like meeting a fictional character. I can't explain it, but I guess you get, you get a voice in your head oh, I know. and it paints a world. But then you met some of your heroes over time. Like you met MFK Fisher. Yeah, I got to know her very well. Yeah. What was she like in real life? Um, you know, like like she is in her books in many ways. Mm-hmm. Acerbic. I mean, um, she was, I mean, I, I loved her. Mm-hmm. But um, she was a tough woman. Mm. Yeah. And um she seems very particular in her books. Very particular and you know I mean you know she has one child who she never told who her real father was. Really? Yeah. I mean, are, are you still in touch with the the family or No. Oh. I mean I actually never met. I mean I I met her sister Nora mm-hmm. who was great. Um but I never met her kids. Mm. Um I've had some back and forth cuz I wrote an introduction to an English version of um uh, the gastronomical me. Oh yeah, I lo- yeah. that's the one that I love the uh, most. Yeah, me, too. me too. And um, and you've met you met James Beard, right? Uh, yeah, I met James Beard because I was really close with Marion Cunningham. Oh okay. And um, Marion was like my adopted mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just me, for many people in the yes. food world. I mean, but I mean, I talked to Marion uh, three or four times a week for many years. Really? Yeah. I have her breakfast book and her supper book. Yeah, and she's she was just uh, you know really important to me, and um, um, and she was James Beard's assistant for oh, a long time. Okay. So I knew James through her. I I love the how gay men played such a prominent role in the history of like food in America, and a lot of people don't really know that. Um, <laughs> 
well. I mean, just like the, the average American, like when they hear the James Beard Awards, right. I think that they think this very serious, like yeah. uptight, you know. Right. But when I read David Camp's book, The United States of Arugula, it really like painted this picture of James Beard as like a bon vivant and, you know, living it up with gay guys in New York. Oh, yeah. Having and, a grand old time. And, and they, I mean, there, there are a lot of important gay guys yeah Craig Claiborne and, and yeah. many chefs sure know, Jeremiah oh yeah Michael Roberts oh yeah uh, who's that Michael Roberts he's he's no longer with us oh, but okay. he was one of the really um kind of genius chefs of LA he had a restaurant called Trump's Trump's mm-hmm. oh wow I mean um, that wouldn't fly today but <laughs> uh, no it wouldn't fly today but it was it was a very important restaurant in wow. the 70s and my in brother's the 80s. name is uh, Michael Roberts so oh, I'll, I'll let yeah. him know well Ruth we are I, you've been so generous with your time I hope you don't mind that I was asking you like a no, fanning I, out I, over I, you I had no idea I, I didn't know what to expect so. yeah I hope you were okay with all the all the stuff we covered but I every podcast starts with what did you have for lunch but it mm-hmm. ends with what are you having for dinner tonight um, I am meeting friends and going to Found Oyster. Oh, I've heard that's really good. Um, yeah. So I don't know what, and if we can't, you know, they don't take reservations. Okay. So if we can't get in there, we'll go, we'll go somewhere You'll else. be right near the Scientology Center. So you <laughs> exactly. Sign up and become a Scientologist. Yeah. Um, no, I, I just read Bill Addison's review of Found Oyster and it seemed like it. It's really good. My yeah. friend Ryan really liked it. Yeah. And, you know, I love I love the fact that I can stay in the neighborhoods. So oh, that's yeah. great. I mean, so are there, um, do you have a list of places in L.A. that you want to hit before you leave? Yeah, of course I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I'm sort of ticking them off. Well, you've covered, I mean, I've been following on Instagram. I mean, you've really, you're doing better in like a week than I've done like in 10 years here, I feel. Do you have a favorite L.A. place? Well, you know, Nancy Silverton is one of my closest friends. Yes. So, um I love Kisvaka. That's where I went last uh, night for my birthday. Uh, I, I, and, and it was actually interesting because, so Ruth on her Instagram posted this picture of this anchovy toast, which was like a piece of like grilled bread and then a scoop of butter and then the anchovy lying on top of it. But when, so when I ordered it last night at the restaurant, I don't want to get this waitress in trouble, but she was like, don't get that. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, it's like a whole scoop of butter on the, on the bread. And she goes, it's so much fat. You're not going to like it. And I was like, well, Ruth, I was like, Ruth Reichel ate it. And I'm sure. So I got it and I bit, and I loved it, but it was very decadent. It is very decadent, but they're, they're also, they're wonderful anchovies. Oh, yeah. Anchovies are so good. They're, they're Spanish anchovies and. Yeah, there was something yeah, yeah. about it. But if it weren't for you, that's another case where like you kind of showed me the way. And but you know, God, if you don't want to eat fat, that's not the restaurant to go to. Oh, I mean, sure. I mean, yeah, she's it's very meaty. It's true. She made a point. She's like, I normally love to eat fat, but this is just a lot for me. So she felt very bad. I don't want to get her in trouble in case anybody's listening. I'm not telling Nancy. Okay, don't tell Nancy. Yeah, please don't tell Nancy. Nancy, don't listen to this. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for coming on and uh, enjoy the rest of your time thank in LA. You. Um,